Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, September the 21st, 2023. We podcasters i guess i can speak on behalf of all podcasters we're a hierarchical lot we look we look up and down the pole podcasts that do better than us we look up to and of course we look down contemptuously at those that are less successful uh and i've always looked up at a very successful podcast called think fast talk smart remarkably successful one of the very very top ones at least according to chartable and i'm ashamed to say that when i compare it to mine uh think fast and talk smart is way ahead so i feel rather inadequate uh in uh in the context of my guest today matt abrahams who is the presenter of talk uh, of think fast talk smart podcast and he has a book out based on the podcast Think faster, talk smarter. How to speak successfully when you're put on the spot. So let me put Matt on the spot. He's talking to us from Palo Alto, where he lives and prospers. Matt, how am I going to catch up with you? How can I improve? <laughs> it's not a competition, Andrew. It's we're always both- a competition, Matt. We're, you know that better than I do. No, we're, we're, we're both doing well, serving our audiences with the information, hopefully, that will help them. But it's, it's a true pleasure to be chatting with you. Well, I know that you have a certain amount of rules to make conversation. Uh, never make it about yourself. Always make it about them. Is that one of the rules, Matt? Absolutely. As, as a, a guest on my show once said, Rachel, Rachel Greenwald, it's about being interested and not being interesting. So it's all about helping the other person be successful in their communication. Does that include guys like Russell Brand and Joe Rogan? <laughs> well, I don't have the, uh, the many opportunities to talk with them. And, and if you're saying, is that what they need to do? Probably not. But uh, I think it's good for anybody in any interaction to be curious to be open and to set your conversational partner up for, for a good conversation. You know, many of us, I think, see conversation as a tennis match where I got to hit it over the net and score a point. Mm. And that's not, that's not what works. I think it's more like the game of hacky sack or, or where you pass a football around and just try to keep it off the ground. Everybody's trying to set everybody else up for success. And that's, that's what leads to good conversation. So that's the Stanford way. There's no winners, Matt. Only participants. <laughs> That's not true. There, there are people who do better and who do worse. But I think you will do better ultimately if you are open to those who, you co- who you're communicating with and at least entertain their ideas. So uh, you, you're a longtime uh, Stanford professor. You're not full-time, but you've spent a lot of time at the university. You teach at the business school in organizational behavior, particularly in speaking. And you started the, the podcast, we're going to get to the book in a minute. You started sure. your podcast uh, in 2020. What's so significant about that? Why was the market, the world ready for Think Fast, Talk Smart in 2020? Well, so the whole thing was an experiment. We, we were brainstorming in 2019. The, the marketing communication folks at, the, at Stanford's Business School came to me and said, we'd like to explore doing a podcast. The, the school had not had a formal official podcast, and they were interested in dabbling in it. 
uh, communication was a topic they knew that was of interest to their audience. And they asked if I would be willing to do it. And I, I, I try to say yes to opportunity when it presents. And it turns out that we had five episodes recorded uh, in, and launched in January 2020. And as you well know, shortly thereafter, the pandemic hit. A lot of people started listening to podcasts and a lot of people were interested in how do we communicate in this lockdown world that we have. And, and I believe people look for trusted sources of educational information, Stanford being one of them. So we had the right content at the right time at the right place and, and people began listening. And then, as you well know, once you develop a following and people find value from your content, uh, word gets out. So that's, uh, that's our origin story. And, and we constantly challenge ourselves to get better and to find uh, new interesting angles to present to the audience. And it's a lot of fun to do that. Matt, many people are very nervous about speaking. Their ultimate nightmare is putting them in front of a, of a large room of people yes. and talking. Is that, do you think, in part because they think that speaking somehow summarizes them, reflects who they are, and they're not happy about how they appear? Well, I think we are all worried about how we come off. I fundamentally believe that this is part of the human condition when we put ourselves uh, in a position where our status, our reputation are at risk, that it makes sense to be nervous. I think it's part of, of being human. And so we can learn to manage that. It's, it's universal. 85% of people across the world feel nervous when they're up in front of others in high stakes situations. The other 15%, quite frankly, I think are lying. I think they, we can make them nervous too. But it's about managing that anxiety so you can actually be effective in those moments of, of high stakes. I have to admit, and this probably reflects my own um, Hitler fetish, uh, I... I, I the bigger the audience, the less nervous I am. But maybe it's because I'm comfortable making a fool of myself. Well, you know, there are many people who the, the more anonymous the audience is, the less nervous they are. Yeah, they're, that's certainly me. If it's three people, I will definitely get nervous. And especially if they're three people that I know. Right. And care about what they think. Absolutely. And then there are other people for whom it's it's the opposite. It's just the sheer mass makes them them nervous. And and all of that's normal. You know, some people uh, people find different aspects nervous. Some people get very nervous in person speaking and not so nervous virtually and vice versa. So it, everybody's a little different about what really gets them the most nervous. Matt, you began your career as a marketing executive. You've you've done very well as a as a tech guy. And then you've went to Stanford. Were you nervous? Have, are you a nervous kind of guy, a nervous speaker, nervous at dinner parties, nervous on shows like this? Uh, so I've learned to be much less nervous. I was much more nervous uh, earlier in my life. And as I began to explore this, uh, both academically and, and then just experientially, I've, I've become much more confident. There are certainly circumstances that make me nervous. Uh, one that happens every year, a, a, a group of professors of communication at top business schools get together. We share best practices. And whenever I'm asked to speak in front of them, I get very nervous. You but do? in most other, oh yeah, absolutely. They know a lot. They know what I know. They know more than I know. Uh, it's very important to me how I'm viewed among, in that group. Uh, and there are other circumstances where, where I don't get as nervous just because I've, I've, uh, grown accustomed to it. And I have certain strategies that I use to help me manage my anxiety in those circumstances. Is it different, Matt, teaching speaking from speaking itself? You're, 
you're a professional speaker. You do speeches. You were a very successful marketing executive, and now you teach speaking. What's the difference? Well, I mean, it's the obvious difference is that we're really dissecting it and breaking it down into different components when we talk about it. So there's, it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to analyze it. I will tell you that when I first started teaching communication, I felt great pressure to do it really well because everybody was paying attention, not just to what I was saying, but how I was saying it. And I joke, I'm not kidding you, Andrew. There were times when I first started speaking where I would gesture and I would see the whole class follow my hands as if, that's the right way to use your hands when you speak. Um, I, I have subsequently learned to not pay as much attention to that and to disabuse my students of the fact that there is a right way to communicate. And, and together, the, all of that has made me feel better and hopefully have made me a better teacher. Is speaking, Matt, an art or a science? Yes, it is both. It is both. So there is clear science behind speaking in terms of what we say, how we say it, the way we structure messages. And then there's an art to it. There's this connection. There's this piece about being authentic and charismatic. And we can study components of that scientifically, but but there's also an art form to it. And, and again, we, we know it when we see it, but it's really hard to break down and describe. Who's the best speaker? What's the best speech you can remember? I remember... I think it must have been in about 1996. I was a startup internet entrepreneur and I went down to a music, uh, one of the early digital music events in Los Angeles. And I remember hearing Mark Cuban mm -hmm. and um, I was really, and, and it's hard to blow me away, but I was really blown away. He was a brilliant speaker and it was a wonderful speech. And basically what he argued was, uh, if you're 80% good enough, that's fine. He's sick of dealing with it. This was before he even became a rich man. He was just another uh, yeah. music entrepreneur. Uh, but he had a brilliant manner. He was articulate and he was to the point. And, and I always remember that speech. Are there particular speeches that you remember? Or oh, certainly, certainly. Uh, I remember lots of lots of speeches. Um, there are some some by my students who do great job, and others by people who are very famous. I, I often am asked, "What's the best speech you've ever heard?" and all of that. And and it's really hard for me to identify. I see different characteristics. I will tell you that one of the speeches that impresses me the most, though, uh, for its the way it's structured, for its meeting the moment when it was delivered. Uh, everybody knows Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, but I mm -hmm. actually think his Nobel Prize acceptance speech is as good, if not better than that speech in terms of how it's crafted, in terms of how it's delivered. Uh, it's, a, it's a textbook case of doing all the things that we teach in strategic communication. Um, but there are many others that, that, that I admire and, I, and my students and I look at. The MLK response is a safe answer because he's clearly a very good speaker but he's also saying something that's uh very acceptable uh, is it possible to like a speech when someone's saying something really nasty i mean I'm oh absolutely about hitler. Yeah, i don't know how good a speaker hitler was i don't speak german but right um there are politicians i mean even donald trump is certainly a better speaker i think than joe biden well, so, you know, it defines, same, it defines how you it, it depends on how you define better. I certainly think, uh, you know, one of the concepts that is fundamental to effective communication is really understanding your audience and crafting mm -hmm. messages that resonate with your audience. And I think it is uh, amazingly clear that someone like Donald Trump is very good 
at understanding what resonates with his audience and crafting messages that target his audience well. Um, all good communicators need to think about their audience and they have to think about what resonates and is relevant to them. What's the difference, Matt, between a speech and a concert, um, a perform that, that, that kind of performance, yeah, a Rolling Stones or a Bruce Springsteen concert uh, and, and, and making a speech? Are they part of the same family? I think so. I think in many ways, if, if, if you define communication uh, as making common to, to bring to people together to a shared meaning or shared experience, then I think things like a concert uh, certainly reflect that. Uh, you're transmitting meaning. You're, you're doing so at both an intellectual and an emotional level. And so I think there are similar skills and concepts that relate. Um, where they diverge, I would argue, is that a performance is in, in a way distancing, right? So I am the performer, you are the audience. Some of the most impactful and important communication is about bridging that gap. And in, in communication, we are all about trying to make that connection and make it immediate in a way that an actor or a singer, it's less about that. Although I will argue that the people we hold up as some of our best performers do connect with us in a way that very good speakers do as well. Yeah, I guess it's all about intimacy. You think of Springsteen, yeah. he's a master of intimacy. But then yeah. you think about Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. and he's the reverse of that. When he, when he uh, performs, and I've seen him a couple of times, two or three times recently in the, in the last couple of years, it's almost as if he makes an effort to distance himself from the audience. Is that a legitimate strategy or does that ultimately, Matt, make you a bad speaker, bad performer? Well, I certainly don't have the credibility and credentials to talk about uh, good or bad performers. But what I'll tell you is, you know, it is a strategy to make the message be the important thing and not the connection that the person delivering the message has. And that is a strategy. It can work. There are other times where it is that immediacy, that intimacy that you're talking about that's most important. And I think the magic happens when you blend both of those together. Uh, I do not advise the people I coach to, to distance themselves from their messages, but certainly, um, you know, I think of somebody like a Bob Dylan, I think he, he, he lets his music stand for itself and he wants it to be about the music, not necessarily about the connection he has to the audience. You're also a coach, Matt, and I know yeah. you've coached you've just not just uh, TED speakers, but Nobel Prize winners. I was actually in Manila last week with Maria Ressa, who gave a wonderful speech mm -hmm. a couple of years ago when she won the Nobel Prize. Do we live in a, a, a TED conference universe where everyone wants to be a TED speaker? Everyone watches these 16 or 18 minute TED mm -hmm. speeches online. So I certainly think that there was a time where that was the aspiration, like you have made it if you get your TED talk. I don't think that's the case anymore. And as somebody who has spoken in TEDx stages, not the formal TED stage, but I've coached people who've spoken on the TED stage, I think there's a lot of value that TED has brought to the world of communication. It has reminded us that, that communication and presenting is an art and, 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 and a science. But I also think it's done a disservice in that we hold as our standard of, a, of what good communication looks like is what we see on those TED, in those TED Talks. And, and while you can judge TED Talks 
uh, amongst them amongst themselves they're not necessarily the best rubric for our everyday communication and i find that in my coaching work a lot of people are very intimidated because they feel like that's the way to speak and that's the way to speak in that environment for that audience but there are lots of other ways to communicate and when we take that pressure off to be like that we can actually do better in our everyday communication yeah i've done quite a lot of TED stuff mm. and, and it always yeah. seems a bit formulaic it always annoys me whenever i've done TED speeches they always want to teach you they always have their own mm -hmm. um their own principles and you got to be prepared and you got to do this and that and so after a while it seems to me that a lot of the TED speeches just whatever people are saying whoever they are they all sound the same well, so I think there are some similarities across what you see in TED Talks, for sure. There's a, there's a structure to it. Uh, I find that some of the topics are certainly engaging, and I have learned so much by listening to and appreciating the way people communicate. But there is a, there is a methodology, and you, if you watch a lot of them, you begin to see that. In fact, people have written books on the TED approach to communication. Many books. Well, we are speaking with a man who thinks fast and talks even faster. Think faster, talk smarter. His new book, Matt Abraham. Um, book is out next week. Matt, we're going to take a short break. Um, and then I want to talk more specifically about the book and what you are telling everyone in the book about how to think faster and talk smarter. So, don't talk, don't think, stay around for 30 seconds and we'll be back. Um, just want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We'll be back in two seconds with the great Matt Abrahams. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. We are speaking with the great Matt Abrahams from Stanford University, the author of a new book. It's out next week. Think faster, talk smarter. He's also you keep putting these superlatives in front of my well, name. I'm going to get a big yeah, head about you're... this, Andrew. Well, because you're more popular than I am. Oh, uh, I have think teenage... fast, talk smart. Is his yeah. podcast? I want to. When I grow up, I want to be like Matt Abrahams. Um, Matt, it's so nice to hear. I have two teenagers, and and I don't get a lot of this. Uh, yeah, affection. well, so do I. I know that feeling. Uh, well, we, we got to say it to each other, Matt. And then okay, there you go. Well, I appreciate that. the work you do as well. Thank you. Um, so before the break, Matt, we were, and and and, and you're not as, perhaps as critical a person as me, but even I got a little bit of an edge from you on Ted. You suggested it was a bit formulaic. What about this book? Is it a bit formulaic? You have all these rules, all these action plans. Are you telling everyone to behave in the same way in terms of thinking faster or talking smarter? So or, I do. Or, in, sorry, go on. I do in the book, the first half of the book, provide a methodology. But the methodology is simply a path to walk down in order to be able to speak freely. It is ironic and, and counterintuitive that a methodology can actually help you free up to speak in the moment and respond spontaneously. But if you think about it, 
This is true in lots of situations. Athletes practice and follow drills and exercise regimens. Jazz musicians follow chord progressions and, and common practice so that when they're in that moment of spontaneity, they can respond and feel prepared. So I am not preparing everybody to speak the same way, but I'm giving people a direction and a set of steps they can take so when they are in that moment, they can with confidence and clarity communicate their points of view. The second half of the book goes beyond the methodology and says, let's look at six different spontaneous speaking situations, like making small talk, like trying to influence people, giving feedback, answering questions, and see how some of these principles from the methodology can play out in those situations, again, in service of helping people feel more comfortable and confident when they find themselves in those situations. Matt, my wife, who you went to college with, is a big Mike Tyson fan, and she always quotes me the famous Tyson line that uh, all, all plans go out the window when you get punched in the face. Yes. Yeah. In terms of speaking, isn't that true? You can come up with all these different methodologies or anti-methodological methodologies, all these plans. But when you get not so much put in front of a room, but when you, you sit down at a dinner table, when, you're, when you, you sit in front of a committee who are interviewing you or you sit with a, a group of people, doesn't everything go out the window? You've got to be spontaneous. Or can you keep to that methodological framework? Well, so the methodology itself. So first and foremost, uh, your wife is wonderful. I've known her forever. And second, uh, I have been a martial artist for four decades. So I, I understand the, the getting punched in the face. It has happened more, more than I would like to admit. Uh, the, the methodology I provide is really... It's not like a color by numbers, like do this, this, and this, and all of a sudden you're going to be great. It's more about mindset and putting yourself in, leveraging certain structures that can help. So if we take the right mindset and if we leverage these structures, then we can respond more freely. So in the moment when you're put on the spot and you're in the elevator and all of a sudden your boss's boss gets in and says, hey, what are you working on? In that moment, because you have the appropriate mindset and you have some of these structures to leverage, you can respond. So the methodology, as I define it, it's, it's really the first four steps are about mindset and the second two are about messaging. It's not a prescriptive do X, then Y, then Z, and all of a sudden you're a great communicator. It is more a meta methodology so that you can be prepared, much like athletes and jazz musicians it's not the specifics, it's the approach and then the tools that you use to help. Although there is a difference between athletes and jazz musicians. Jazz itself as an art is rooted in spontaneity, whereas other activities aren't. Um, I would argue that in the moment of, of athletic competition, there, there is a lot of spontaneity. Granted, there are rules, but just like there are rules in jazz, there are rules in improvisation. Uh, I think there is a lot of similarity. Matt, what advice would you give people who are full of regret about what they didn't say? We've all been in situations where we've been put on the spot yeah. and we've responded inadequately, especially in retrospect. If we, yes. you know, we, we were falling asleep at night and you think to yourself, I wish I'd said that, or that would have yeah. been the obvious response. Should we be regretful of that or should we learn from it? Well, obviously I'm going to say the latter. We should learn from it. Uh, you know, the, the, 
the only way you get better at communication is the way you get better at lots of things. It's repetition, reflection, and feedback. So you need to practice and then you need to reflect. And there's a difference between ruminating and reflecting. And I think reflection is really important. Ruminating and beating yourself up over the fact that you didn't do something or you could have done it differently. I don't know that that serves a purpose, but noticing, hey, I could have done that better and here's what I'm going to do differently next time. I do think there's value in that. Um, and if that happens to you and you, you misspeak or you don't say something the appropriate way, Often there are ways to correct that. If I'm giving, if I'm in a work setting and I don't say something right, perhaps the next day I can send an email and say, when we talked about that, I'd like to add this additional material or another way upon reflection that I think we could look at it is this way. So there are often circumstances where you can correct or augment what you said to make yourself feel better and to be more successful in whatever that goal was you were trying to achieve. Should we be thinking about speaking in a, in a Gladwellian way of, a thousand hours or 10,000 hours or however many thousand of hours <laughs> uh, Malcolm Gladwell says you have to get really good at something? So certainly repetition and practice is helpful. How much? I, I don't know the answer to that. It really depends on the person. It depends on the situation. But repetition does help. It helps you feel more comfortable. It develops neuropathways that make it more efficient. It allows you to recognize patterns more quickly. So some level of practice is important and not just practice in front of yourself, but practicing in front of others. That's why I think groups like Toastmasters and other organizations that invite that kind of practice are powerful. And then I'd also encourage people to digitally record themselves as they speak. I assume you've watched yourself speak. Oh, I hate never. I would try and avoid it as much as yeah. I can. We all hate that. We hate well, the sound of our own hard. voice. And we only hear we we only hear mistakes. We only hear what so we, I, we I, I agree that it's difficult, but I would I, I do believe that you can watch yourself and go in with a mindset that will actually help you see not just the things that you'd like to improve, but the things you do well to hone. I see it happen all the time in my students. Uh, my students have to do three major deliverables in the course. We digitally record many of them. They watch them not just once, not twice, but three times in three different ways. Okay. And they, they will tell me as painful as it is, they will say it is the most valuable teaching tool that the class provides them with they say that to you to your face no man. i they tell other people they, they i'm sure they say that guy's a real sadist he's he's making our lives <laughs> miserable In no terms they of, thank me they thank yeah me. they all thank you man but think faster talk smarter how personal does your book get in in the context of our most meaningful conversations and our most important talking our thinking takes place with husbands and wives and children and close friends and even with ourselves. Mm -hmm. At what point does your book end or does it never end in that sense? Well, in the book, I try to represent all types of communication with all types of audiences. So I, I give examples and talk about how this stuff applies in uh, friendships and in interpersonal romantic relationships and relationships with our kids. I talk a lot about how we have to change the way we think uh, about it. So our internal dialogue. So I try to cover those bases because they're all very important when it comes to the quality and type of communication we have. My, you know, people often say, what's your goal for the book? And my goal for the book is to help people. It's not to be on lists, et cetera. But the goal of the, I will know I was successful with this book. If people show me that they've been underlining it, dog-earing it, coming back to it, because that's really what it's for. It's to help people in those moments where they, they could 
they really want to shine when they're put on the spot and they really want to to do what's best for them and the others they're talking with. Uh, you you missed uh, talking with wives. Uh, <laughs> well, romantic partners, uh, wives wives count. <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, um, what what area do you think? And, and you teach this, you live this communications life. Is there one area in particular that you think people need huge amounts of help on that they don't recognize uh, is an area for a communication? tutor, professor, expert like yourself? Uh, I, I, will, I, I will give you two answers. One, uh, we've already talked about, we need to do better at understanding the needs of our audience. Many of us, either because we're so busy or we're so entrenched in our content, we don't think about how to package our content in a way so others can understand it. We use jargon, we speak too quickly, we go too deep, too fast. And then the other is we need to work on being more concise. Our world is getting more and more competitive for people's attention. I think attention is our most precious commodity. And we need to package our information in a focused way so it's clear and it's concise. Now, I don't mean dumbing it down. I mean making it accessible. You know, my mother has this famous, has my, a favorite saying of mine. Uh, and it's, tell me the time, don't build me the clock. And many of us, when we communicate, we give way too much detail or give it too soon we need to be concise. We need to be audience focused. And together, that will help us be better in our communication. Is that your way, Matt, of telling me we need to end this conversation? <laughs> I would love to keep talking with you, Andrew. I have no forever, desire to forever. end. Well, uh, we've had great conversations before, and they haven't been recorded. So I look forward to the talks that we have. What do you make, though, of recording conversation, the, the old Socrates-Plato debate about whether stuff should be written down. Socrates, of course, famously said that he didn't want anything written down. He didn't want people to read what he said because it took away from the value. You, of course, teach speech, and but you've written a book about it. And I write a book about it, and I do podcasts that are recorded. For me, it's all about learning for others to learn, but also for ourselves to learn. And, and I think a great way to do it is to capture it, reflect on it, think about it, but realize that something is missing. You know, there's a magic spark that happens in live communication, and it's hard to capture in recordings or in written words, but there is still tremendous value in capturing the information and thinking about it, learning from it, and, and reflecting on it. And for people who want to become professional communicators like mm -hmm. yourself, you teach it and you have a very successful podcast, you write about it, what advice would you give? Do you have to be a good communicator to be do you have to be a good communicator to be a professional communicator i don't know that that's necessarily a requirement i think it helps for sure to be a, a professional communicator i think you have to be very clear on what it is your message is and be able to connect it to your audience in a way that's engaging and meaningful does it have to be polished does it have to be expert i don't necessarily think so the 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 key is to really understand yourself and how you bring yourself authentically to the topic that you're discussing. So if you're not an authentic person, you can't be a good communicator. Well, I think eventually you run into trouble. And we've seen that in lots of situations where people were deceptive or they weren't convinced of their own behavior, of their own message or their behavior uh, worked against what they were trying to get across. Absolutely. I think authenticity is, is critical to being uh, a professional 
in any regard, but certainly in terms of communication. You wrote an interesting piece in Newsweek recently about uh, mastering the art of small talk. You talk about crafting content. Uh, you talk about making it about them, not you. We talked about that uh, and avoiding the how are you loop. Mm -hmm. uh, you also talk about um, gracefully leaving a conversation. So let's end on that. Um, put you on the spot again. How, how do we need to end this conversation, Matt? You can lead us out. So the approach that I recommend in the book, I learned from Rachel Greenwald, uh, who is a, a fascinating person. She's a professional matchmaker and an academic. And she calls it the white flag approach, not white flag of surrender, but white flag of auto racing, which signals the last lap. So before you leave, most of us leave conversations by relying on biology. It's like, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. I, I, I'm thirsty. Instead, you signal that you're going to leave. You say, hey, I'd like to go talk to those people over there. But before I leave, I have one more question or I'd like to learn a little bit more. Mm. And then after we have that interaction, you share more, you answer the question. Then I say, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. I'm now going to meet those folks over there. It sets people up so the conversation doesn't end abruptly. People can begin preparing to end. And it's just a polite way to fade out. So do it, Matt. Fade us out. So in a few moments, I actually have to jump on another call. But you know what, Andrew? I would love to chat about how you feel that you and I can improve both of our podcasts.